So uh, we are in this uh, mini-series called Homecoming, um, but it's actually the third part of a mini-series that Jesus told uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. The first one is about the lost sheep, the second one is about the lost coin, and then this one that we're focusing on, uh, which is known as the lost son or the prodigal son. Uh, The chapter where these accounts, these stories, these parables um, are found in Luke 15 starts with this verse. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. As long as I have breath in my body, I will continue to emphasize the fact that Jesus continually drew the broken and the forgotten and the unwanted. Uh, There is something in the heart of God that is always drawing people that come from struggling backgrounds who have found their lives have not worked out perhaps in the way that they hoped that they would. I think Jesus knew exactly who he was speaking to uh, when he used these three amazing stories. He knew that he was dealing with, he was addressing people who needed to encounter the love of a father, a father who would welcome them home, a father who would clean them up and fix them and give them a home and a family to belong to. Feeling lost was... Uh, quite a feature of my struggle as I grew up. Uh, When I was 11 years old, something happened to me uh, which completely unraveled my life, to be quite honest with you. And when I was much older, I was already uh, doing this. I was about 25. um, And a a guy called Gerald Coates, who I was working with at the time, uh, picked me out in a meeting. And uh, he stood me up and he said to me, He said, God wants to speak to you about the number 11. And I just went pop. (laughs) And he didn't know what I'd been through uh, when I was 11, what had happened to me. Uh, But he said to me, God took hold of you at the age of 11. And uh, he did something in your life that will cause you to reach hundreds and thousands of people with the message of the kingdom of heaven. It was a huge defining moment in my life. Uh, I can't say that everything in my life suddenly was easy. Um, In many ways, it became more difficult. Most of you know who are Christians. Uh, We are not Christians because it is easy. Uh, We are Christians because it is true. And uh, I can't say that my life has been, you know, a, a bed of roses since that, but it's been a lot easier because God broke into my life. So in this beautiful story that we Uh, are going to focus on today and Steve did a fantastic job I thought last week I listened to it online I thought it was um, amazing what Steve brought last week and I hope to be able to uh, uh, add to that in what I'm going to say in the next few moments but as we look at this story we uncover once again the the great rescue that lies in the heart of this glorious gospel uh, of a father who has gone to and continues to go to extreme outrageous lengths to reach us, uh, to save us. Every story that Jesus told, every miracle that he performed, every person 
that he encountered revealed the passionate, searching heart of God the Father. So if you are in a place today where you feel shut out, you feel dislocated, you feel disconnected, this message is for you. This Father is for you. This homecoming invitation is for you. Some of you who are uh, uh, know me through Alpha and Cap will have heard this story before, uh, but it's a story that I have told many times, and it's of a pilot who was very experienced, but he made a catastrophic error in taking off from a country airfield in America in a plane that had no lights. It was an old-fashioned plane. He was a very experienced pilot, but he took off very late in the evening. And as he circled the mountains and came into land, he realized his error, that he had failed to make sure that there was enough light to complete the flight and the landing. And as he maneuvered the aeroplane into land, he couldn't work out where the landing strip was. There was no one on duty at the airfield and there were no lights on the aeroplane. For the next two hours, this panic-stricken pilot flew round and round and round, trying to find the landing strip, trying to find the way back to the airfield. As the fuel was running out, he knew that the plane would literally fall out of the sky if it ran out. It was just then that a miracle took place. Near the airfield was another guy who was a pilot, and he heard a droning in the background, and with some sort of aviator's instinct or sixth sense, he worked out what was going on. And he got in his car and he tore to the airfield. And he, he drove up and down the landing strip. And after about four or five times, he parked his car at the end of the landing strip and he, light, he put his lights on full beam. Moments later, the plane came into land as the fuel ran out. I encounter so many people doing what I do who, who are living with an internal panic, a sense of disorientation, trying to find the landing strip, trying to find their way home. For some of us, home is a positive term. It's the place of peace, of unbreakable bonds of commitment in the context of family. For others, home is an uncomfortable reminder of everything that went wrong, of everything they longed for but never seemed to be able to find. According to the film The Wizard of Oz, all you need to do is put on a pair of women's red stilettos <laughs> and click your heels together and say there's no place like home, and it sort of just happens. Well, if only it were that simple. So we're going to look at this story in the Bible today, but before we do that, um, I've got a one-minute version, uh, which is not really from the Bible, it's more from Sesame Street, and for those of you who remember Sesame Street, uh, this is brought to you by the letter F. I hope you're ready for this. This is the story we are focusing on today. I need a glass of water before I do this. You'll, you'll realise in a moment. Okay, you ready? Say yes, Steve. 
Feeling fairly foolish, Fred fled forthwith. Uh, no, hold on. Feeling fairly foolish, Fred forced his father to fork out the family fortune. Feeling free, fled, Fred fled forthwith to fancy fields. When you started, finding foolish frivolities, frequent fornication, fabulous feasting, and faithless friends. Fred frittered away his father's fortune, fleeced by his friends in folly. Fully fatigued and facing famine, famine, Fred found himself as a feed flinger in a filthy farmyard with fungus on his face and a fistful of fresh, fragrant fertilizer. Fui, what a fiasco, the fragile fugitive, forlornly fumbled, face, frankly facing facts, my father's flunkies fare far finer, which is not easy for him to say. Frightened and frustrated by failure, Fred fled forthwith to his family home, filled with fear and foreboding. Falling at his father's feet, he forlornly fumbled, Frank, father, frankly I've flunked it, I've fruitlessly forfeited family favour. Fortunately for Fred, the far-sighted father said fantastic and forgetting Fred's failings, frantically flagged the flunkies, furnished Fred with fashionable flannels, fetched the flatling from the fatling from the stock, flock, flock, and fixed a fabulous feast. But Fred's fault-finding brother Flank flew, Frank flew into a flaming fit, frowning on Fred's I'm exhausted. Fred's fancy footwork and his father's fickle forgiveness. Fred's a flipping fool, said Frank. But the faithful father figured fidelity is fine, Frank, but the fugitive is found. What forbids fervent festivity? Let flags be unfurled, let the fanfares flare. The father's forgiveness formed the foundation of Fred's future fortitude forever. I'm not doing it again. In our crazy world, people strive for the greatest possible pleasure that lasts for the longest possible time at the cheapest possible price. It causes chaos uh, and it doesn't work, I'm afraid. So let's focus in on this amazing story that Jesus told of a son's rejection of his father uh, in the senseless, meaningless pursuit of pleasure with absolutely no regard for the consequences. Let's pick up the story in Luke 15 and verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. Fred and Frank. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Let's pause there for a moment. It's frequently made very obvious that Jesus understood the society that he came into and and even the nuances of the culture that he was speaking to. In telling this story, Jesus would have known that there is absolutely no context, there is no precedent in a Jewish society such as that that gave this son any right to his father's wealth before his father was dead. This outrageous request that the young guy 
is making really amounts to telling his father that he wished he was dead. That's what's going on. That is the context. That is the shocking nature of this story or parable that Jesus is telling the people. You see, the problem is, is that we can hear these stories. We can hear these parables and we get the meaning of it. We get the impact of it in some way. But what we've got to realize is that our culture is very different to the culture that Jesus spoke into. And Jesus clearly, very often, used shock tactics to communicate the heart and thrust of the message that he was trying to get across. And so the son breaks relationship with his father. In doing so, he breaks relationship with his family and actually he breaks relationship with the community at the same time. It is an extremely reckless error of judgment. And Jesus is using this story to paint a picture of the predicament that we are in, each one of us, through our rejection of God and his ways and his offer and the life that he intended us to live. Jesus doesn't really elaborate too much on what the son got up to. I, I guess we can have our own conclusions, our own guess as to what he got up to. But he does say that he squandered the wealth. What the Bible calls sin is primarily our rejection of God as Father. That's really what the word means. When people say, well, I'm not really a bad person, you know, I would quite like to think I'm in the top half. You know, I don't do evil things, I've not committed horrendous crimes, I've not killed somebody, I help old ladies across the road even if they don't want to cross. I'm not a bad person. But the problem is this. What is the standard? And who is the standard? Because when you look at the life of Jesus, this fabulous, irreplaceable, one-off, perfect human being that even the people who hated him most could not seem to pin anything on him. When you hold up your life against the standard of Christ we fall well short, all of us. In fact, the Bible confirms that for us. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So sin is a description of our separation from God and his standard. It's not a description of a particular type of lifestyle. It's all too easy for us to judge people who engage in activity that is particularly offensive to us for whatever reason. God doesn't do that. God says, for all have fallen short. Right at the beginning, I read that passage, that, that, that verse, right at the beginning of Luke 15. 
the religious people are looking on with disapproval because Jesus is inviting sinners without realizing that they themselves are sinners. They pass judgment. We need to be very careful about that. That we don't describe, even if it's just an internal description, a type of person, a type of section of the community that is particularly offensive or outrageous to us, and we make a judgment. Jesus didn't do that. God doesn't do that. One of my favorite quotes is this. Many people think that they are thinking when they are merely rearranging their prejudices. Let's pick up this wonderful story again. This is from verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired out, hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Imagine the shame of a good old Jewish boy, almost certainly from a very wealthy, successful family and background, taking a job from a Gentile farmer feeding his pigs. It doesn't get a lot worse than that. For all his problems, he now has poverty, hunger, homelessness, displacement. It's probably shame that is highest on his list. It normally is, isn't it? That's normally what we struggle with most. Even though the physical areas of our life can unravel, it's normally the shame, it's normally the guilt, it's normally the emotional stuff that we are left with as a result of the physical predicament that is the hardest thing. My experience is that most people don't become Christians, not because it doesn't make sense, not because God isn't real, but because they don't feel that they're good enough. They don't feel that they're clean enough. They don't feel that they are acceptable enough. That is something that I find so hard to process. It's tragic that people feel that. It's tragic that people feel they cannot access church because they don't feel that they match up. We have to be careful of that as well. People often say, why has God abandoned me? But the truth is we have abandoned him. And some of us have done time in the pigsty. Verse 17. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went back to his father. It would be great to say that all of this happened at the front of a Christian meeting. The word of knowledge, we had one this morning, given out, there's somebody here who's ran away from their father and their home and their community, and then it ended up with somebody weeping at the front of the meeting. It would be great to say that that's what's happened. Unfortunately, it's only when self-pity kicked in and his mind drifted back to the life that he once had that regret starts to take over. That is the primary driver here, regret, not repentance. The Bible uses this word repentance, which literally means to to turn around as as a, a state of heart that is then backed up by an action. It, it means facing the implications of the wreckage that we have caused. Another one of my favorite quotes, a man often meets his destiny on the road he took to avoid it. As much as I would like to say to you this morning that that is in the Bible, it's actually from Kung Fu Panda. I'm a big fan. But it's a fairly good quote. (laughs) This is the part of the story where we realize that the lead role is actually being played not by the son at all, but by the father. He is the leading man in this drama. Sometimes the Bible chunks up these stories and gives them titles. And uh, so we have, the t- with the, we have the title, The Prodigal Son or The Lost Son. That's not actually how it was written. That's just what people have used to describe the particular parts of the content of the Bible. Um, but perhaps this story is much more, it would be better named The Forgiving Father or The Gracious Father, not really The Lost Son, because that's really the heart of what this story is all about. It's a picture of the father, not really a picture of the son. It is the extreme reaction in the father towards the son which gives this story the the sense of wonder and uh, potency and relevance to our situation. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine 
was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I've lost count of how many times I've used this story to introduce people to this father. But it, it is a immensely powerful story and it's so current, it's so relevant. So what's going on? What is happening in this part of the story that describes the father's reconnection with the son? Well, the reconciliation is public. If the young men of that village had got to him first, he would have been in serious trouble. So remember what I said at the very beginning about the the Jewish culture and the nature of the community that this this young lad has separated himself from. in, In rejecting his father, he has rejected his family. In rejecting his family, he has rejected his community. And that has serious consequences. And so if this guy had tried to come back to the community that he has disgraced, the precedent would have been that the young men of the village would have got at him first. And he would have been in major problems. The truth is they may well have killed him. So this isn't some sort of sorry dad thing. This is a serious problem. He has ostracized himself from the community and he is about to face the consequences. And so the father acts. The father takes steps which actually discredit him. And there's lots of stuff in this story. There's a particular part where in in one version of the Bible it actually talks about the father running towards the son because of a number of bits of information that we haven't got too much time to go into today there is a a big suggestion here that this is a seriously important guy the father in the community and for someone of his stature and probably age to be seen running in the community it was not particularly acceptable not the done thing. It, wasn't, it didn't fit with the expected levels of decorum. But there is a recklessness to the Father's grace, which is matched only with the recklessness of the actions of the Son at the beginning of the story. And so the reconnection is public. And it's actually on the outskirts of the village. The son is not just forgiven, but he is restored. And then he is reintroduced into the family and the community under the protection of the father. So it's like almost the son has taken this long walk back. And even though the decision to go back was probably selfish, 
Something has happened in his heart on the way back and you can see it in the way that he addresses his father. But I don't know what he was expecting. What would you have been expecting? I would have been pretty nervous. But having steeled his nerve to, to run the gauntlet of hate, he sees his father, who is abused in an awful way, run the gauntlet for him, putting his own reputation on the line. The story ends with the, the older son embittered by the father's grace. And I will leave that in the very capable hands of my friend Jonathan Lloyd, J-Lo, next week. But it's another amazing part of this incredibly beautiful, fairly short story. So let me, let me finish by um, showing you a picture of a, a sculpture. Uh, it's an amazing sculpture. There's actually 10 like it. They're all different people and they're all in the port of uh, uh, Marseille in France. And uh, each one uh, is a different person and each one is carrying a heavy suitcase. But as you can see, the, the chest, the torso has been carved out. It's an amazing, amazing uh, 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 depiction. And, and it represents the pain that is created by displacement. Uh, the guy who, who uh, the sculptor, the artist who was responsible for them, uh, had spent a, a whole of his life, he's still alive, he's not an old man, he, he spent a lot of his life traveling, migrating, and uh, wanted to use this uh, in the uh, amazing setting of a port uh, to talk about uh, uh, the pain of being uh, displaced and, and forced out. We are built for relationship with a father. And, and when we are dislocated from him, we become profoundly lost. And that often gives way to anger, frustration, even violence, because we lose our way, we lose our bearing. You see, this isn't a religion to belong to, it's a father to be reconnected to. That's what is at the heart of the gospel. Increasingly, in my experience, when people hear that they can be forgiven and restored to God, they respond almost always. One final scripture, and then we're going to pray. Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the gate. Enter in today. You may have spent a lot of time on the threshold of the door, looking in, wondering. You may have once lived in the house, but you made a willful decision to leave. That is a serious thing, to abandon the Father. But the good news is this. The homecoming is an invitation to reconnect, to be forgiven, restored, reunited with a father, with a family, with a community.
If you know that God has put his hand upon you today, it could be for the first time, but this may be for people who have lived the Christian life for a lifetime. But there's a moment, there's a moment of homecoming. It may be very specific. It may be around a certain type of issue. But we need to be people who respond when God speaks. And if you know that God has put his hand on you today, I want you to stand to your feet. Do it now. And we're going to pray. Okay, all over this place, God is speaking. Let's respond. Let's respond to the heart of a father. God is among us by his spirit. There may be issues in your childhood, as there are in mine, which make this whole father thing quite complicated. You stand, if that's you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the outrageous grace of the Father. This beating heart that we almost can hear and sense among us. This invitation to live in the house. Sometimes we would prefer to live in the garden because it's a little bit more comfortable. But the invitation is to live in the house. Jesus, thank you for that beautiful story, that timeless story. I pray for my friends here today, my brothers, my sisters that are responding to you, that you would do something wonderful in their lives today, that they would never again fear taking risks for you, that they would understand who they truly are in your eyes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, my Father.